You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Lucy Kellison. And I'm Ruth Flegman. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, March 21st, 2023. Later in the program, the Bloomington Board of Public Works recently turned down an application by the IU chapter of the conservative group Turning Point USA for an All Lives Matter mural on Kirkwood. More in today's local headlines. Also coming up in the next half an hour, we have Disability where we cover the top stories impacting the disability community across the country and around the world, hosted by Abe Shapiro. But first, your local headlines. During the March 14th meeting of the Bloomington Board of Public Works, the board heard a request from Turning Point USA at Indiana University to paint an All Lives Matter street mural. City Attorney Michael Rucker gave some background information on the controversial proposal. He said that city staff recommends the board deny Turning Point's special events application. Turning Point USA has proposed to paint, quote, an approximately 12 foot by 120 foot All Lives Matter street mural on East Kirkwood in front of the Von Lee Building and Indiana University parking lot, uh, end quote. Turning Point is proposing to paint the mural on April 7th and April 8th, 8th of this year. Over the last couple of months, Turning Point and city staff have worked through Turning Point's application to address multiple issues with the application. However, because Turning Point's application is inconsistent with the city's policy and procedures on private art installations within the public right-of-way, staff is recommending that the board deny Turning Point's special event application. As the board may recall, late last year, the board adopted the policy and procedures on private art in the public right-of-way. Turning Point's application is inconsistent with the policy because the application is for, number one, an art installation, number two, it's proposed by a private actor, Number three, it includes words. Number four, it is proposed to be installed in the public's right-of-way. And number five, it is expected to remain in the right-of-way for more than seven days. Because the proposal meets all of these elements, it is not consistent with the policy. Therefore, staff is recommending that the board deny the special event application. Thank you. Applicant Kyle Reynolds, who represents Turning Point USA, was given the opportunity to make a comment. Reynolds said that Turning Point USA would sue if the board denied the application. Kyle Reynolds, president of Turning Point USA at IU. Thank you. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, We feel that removing the speech elements would defeat the purpose of the mural. This is a mural we've been working with the city to paint for nearly two years now. Um, The policy that it is inconsistent with was adapted only after we proposed our mural. It was adapted after our after a federal judge granted us a preliminary injunction when the mural was first denied. And we feel that as the city has allowed private organizations to participate in this, um, participate in producing public murals with speech in the past and have participated in this public forum, we see no reason why our right to do so should be denied. And if unfortunately, 
this board votes down our application, um, we won't have a choice but to, again, bring this issue before federal court. During public comment, concerned resident Heidi Darling urged the board to strike down the proposal. She described the phrase, all lives matter, as a denial to the existence of racial injustice in response to the phrase, Black Lives Matter. The Oxford Dictionary defines euphemism as an indirect word or phrase that people often use to refer to something embarrassing or unpleasant, sometimes to make it seem more acceptable than it really is. When someone dies, they may say they passed. When someone has been fired, they may say they've left to pursue other interests. A euphemism to deny existence of racial injustice is all lives matter. Of course, all lives matter, but that's not the point. The phrase was derived in direct opposition to Black Lives Matter in order to diminish the racial injustice that remains in our society and around the world. The point is that Black Lives Matter too. We must acknowledge that racial, social, and religious injustices exist, and we must all put in the work to prevent all injustice so that truth, equality, and freedom may be shared by all people. Allowing an All Lives Matter mural to be printed on public property would be an insult and would constitute oppression to any minority population. That is to say, any population who isn't white, straight, or Christian. We cannot stand behind euphemisms to avoid dealing with the ugly truths that exist in our society. We cannot allow a mural of All Lives Matter to be printed anywhere on public property. Thank you. Next, Bloomington Bagel Company owner Sue Aquila offered public comment saying that the mural would be inappropriate and would send an unwelcoming message to the people on Kirkwood Avenue. She labeled the proposal as vile racism. I received notice as an adjacent property owner to the mural location. I own Bloomington Bagel Company in the apartment building Dunn Park. Um, I'm here as a business owner as well. Uh, we've worked very hard with city council and the city to close Kirkwood in the summers to be a welcoming place for the community. We're having festivals downtown. We have outdoor seating. Uh, it is neither appropriate uh, nor desired to have any kind of mural like this in our downtown. It is also adjacent to People's Park, which has a history, as we know, there's a sign, first black grocery in the community. Um, it seems an insult to that park. Furthermore, as the parent of a child of color, um, I don't want anyone coming from campus or coming to our downtown to see something that is meant, which is veiled racism. We don't need that in this community. We are working hard to show our support for everyone in this community. So I hope you will turn down this application. Thank you. Then, Executive Committee member of the Monroe County branch of the NAACP, Ruth Ait, urged the board to deny the proposal. She said that the words, all lives matter, have been used to shut down important conversations on racial injustice in the United States. She called out Bloomington's recent history of racial discrimination. I am here to urge the Board of Public Works to deny Turning Point USA at IU's request to paint an All Lives Matter mural on Kirkwood Avenue. 
As noted in the staff report, this proposed installation is inconsistent with the City of Bloomington policy on private art and public right-of-way. I would also like to take this opportunity to say that words need to be considered in context. The words all live matter have been used to shut down important conversations about our country's history of harm to black people. In our own city, black people were restricted from owning or leasing many prime properties as recently as 75 years ago. Black people were barred from IU housing until 1947 and elementary education remained segregated until 1951. Let's talk about this part of our history. Let's acknowledge the opportunities unavailable to black people because of a characteristic beyond their control. Let's interrupt the story about hard work and an even playing field. The playing field has never been even. Our city continues to witness racial disparities in the areas of home ownership, education, criminal justice, health, income, and generational wealth. Until race is not a predictor of outcome in these areas, the playing field is not even and work remains. Context matters, Black Lives Matter. President of the Monroe County Chapter of the NAACP, Maquiba Reese, said discrimination is still prevalent today. She called out what she believes is hypocrisy and performative nature of the phrase, all lives matter. Um, and I know that the Board of Public Works will make a decision tonight about the proposal before you. And I am not here to influence that decision. I actually have a bigger, more important issue to highlight. When I say Black Lives Matter, I mean all Black Lives Matter, not just some, but all. If the All Lives Matter statement were actually true, then the racial tension of America wouldn't be so polarized in the history of enslavement of Africans, mass genocide of Jews, and Native peoples in the violation of religious freedom would not have happened. But we are polarized, and discrimination is still pre prevalent today. And the systems that allow all that harm to happen still exist today in Bloomington, Indiana. We do not yet live in a city, state, or country where all lives actually matter. And that is a real problem we should be discussing tonight. It is not a matter of life and death for some. It is actually ignorant to ignore. And we shouldn't ignore it any longer. If you truly believe that all lives matter, then I invite you, the applicants, and your organization, Turning Point USA, and its members to resist and defeat pending discriminatory legislation in Indiana. You can't say all lives matter and then pick and choose whose lives actually matter. The applicants, let me let it go on to record and show that you and Turning Point USA, USA believe this mural should exist in Bloomington if you believe that you are against hate, you are against white nationalism, you are against white dominance, and you believe the following, that Black lives, Jewish lives, Muslim lives, Asian lives, Latin lives, immigrant lives, lesbian lives, gay lives, bisexual lives, trans lives, queer lives, poor lives, houselessness, folks, and countless others' lives actually matter. The organization that I serve as president for and, and our members currently following bills in Indiana that are stripping the right to vote from its citizens, healthcare, reproductive justice, removing the right and choice to freely love, and that are killing our planet. Tonight, I urge you and your organization to stand up against Senate Bill 451, House Bill 1608, 
Senate Bill 1334, House Bill 1116, just to name a few. Let's face it, the proposed legislation in Indiana does not support all life. In fact, any legislation and those who support it scream and shout just the opposite. And saying or writing all lives matter without accountability is performative and dilutes the movement. The hypocrisy of this all lives matter statement is misleading. The city may or may not approve the request tonight, but what matters most is that we actually live and act in a way that truly supports every single life. The board voted to unanimously deny the street mural proposal. The Board of Public Works will meet again for their regular session on March 28th. Now it's time for Disabilitin, where we cover the top stories impacting the disability community across the country and around the world. Hosted by Abe Shapiro. We turn to Shapiro for more. Good evening, I'm Abe Shapiro, and this is Disabilitin, where we cover the top stories impacting the disability community across the country and around the world. As part of our continuing exploration regarding the history of special education in the United States, we have covered the critical court cases preceding last January's Supreme Court case regarding special education, Perez v. Sturgis Public School District. Our journey so far has taken us to the earliest special education court case, 1893's Walton v. Cambridge, to 1919's Beatty v. Antigo Board of Education, before reaching last week's summary of Goldman v. Ohio, from 1935, one of the first notable victories for a special education student at that time. However, before we move into the mobilization of parents in the 1950s and the tide beginning to turn in favor of students with disabilities, it is critical that we return to the Beatty case of 1919. Although we've already reviewed the aftermath of Merritt Beatty's life following his exclusion from the Anago public school system, we reached out to Susan Smith Blakely, who not only wrote the source informing us of Merritt's later life, but whose father knew Merritt going all the way back to when the case was brought to trial in 1919. Tonight, we air her story and perspective as a witness to special education history. You can hear our full interview with Susan Smith-Blakely at WFHB.org. Just search for Disabilitin. Tonight, we are honored to have Susan Smith-Blakely as one of our guests. She is an award-winning author of four books, a book series including the Bar Books for Women Lawyers and one of the books that features a rather important contribution to our story of special education. What Millennial Lawyers Want, A Bridge from the Past to the Present. She is the recipient of the 2015 Miss J.D. Sharing Her Passion Award and the Lawyers Monthly Women in Law Award in 2016. And she joins us now from Virginia. Again, welcome to the program, Miss Blakely. Well, thank you, Abe. I'm delighted to be with you. I'm just going to add that I actually have five books. Oh, yes, of course, of course. <laughs> And that the new one is the New no Lawyer Launch, the handbook for young lawyers. We began our interview by asking Smith-Blakely about what inspired her to write about special education back in 1979. Well, it came about as a requirement of a seminar course that I was taking 
when I was a last year student at Georgetown Law School. And I enrolled, in, it was 1978, I enrolled in a seminar titled Legal Rights of the Handicapped. And as I mentioned, it was a, a paper requirement course. Um, I ha didn't have any prior interest in the subject matter, but it intrigued me, especially because I had taught public school for eight years prior to going to law school. Uh, my husband during those days um, was training as a fighter pilot in the Marine Corps, and so we had to have we had a different duty station almost every year. So I taught in five different states in the country and um, had a lot of interesting experience doing that. And my interest in education was really profound. So focusing on the equal right to a public education with a handicap was a logical choice for me at that time uh, for the paper topic that I needed to, uh, you know, to, to turn out for that seminar course. One night in the law library, and in the midst of a research session, Smith Blakely stumbled upon a familiar name. I was researching for this paper course, and I came across the case, Beatty versus the Board of Education, which was a Wisconsin Supreme Court case um, decided in 1919, where a local Wisconsin school board's actions in, in denying a sixth grade student who suffered from cerebral palsy was upheld on the basis that that handicapped student had a negative impact on the other students in the room because of uh, physical manifestations of his disease. He didn't talk uh, particularly clearly, and uh, he. I remember reading in the decision that he also had a little bit of a, a drooling problem. Um, the defendant was the public school system in my hometown of Antigo, Wisconsin. One of the reasons we contacted you as well, too, the closest thing that we had when we went to the law library in Antigo was Miss Blakely's article on this. That's right. And so um, it's a small town in North Wisconsin. <laughs> it's where I grew up. And uh, it was a defendant in this case. And, and then in addition to that, which was a great surprise to me, I thought I recognized the name of the uh, aggrieved parties, the plaintiffs in this case, uh, Merritt Beatty and his family. Smith Blakely fondly described what happened next and expanded further upon her father's friendship with Merritt. So when I left the library and got home, I excitedly called my dad, who is, was a lawyer in my hometown still at the time, and who also coincidentally had served on the defendant school board uh, for almost 20 years and, and chaired that board for most of that time. Of course, that was long after the Beatty family sued on behalf of their handicapped son. But it was those coincidence, uh, coincidences were, were pretty uh, strong and, and really enthused me about writing on this topic. So when I asked my dad to confirm whether Merritt Beatty was the man that I knew as Bud Beatty, that certainly was what my dad did. Everybody referred to Merritt Beatty as Bud. 
and uh, he was a common sight walking the streets of our business community, selling advertising, which was the business that he did, and uh, greeting everybody with a smile, but had trouble talking, as I mentioned before, and his gait was very unusual as he shuffled down the street. So you, he, he, he stood out. But he was so determined to function as a businessman, and he did. And that business of his, selling advertising to the local paper and other concerns, um, meant that he had a selling territory which covered a radius of approximately 150 miles from our town, I believe. And he couldn't drive because of his disease. So he often took public transportation, but he also was my dad's passenger on many occasions, and my dad knew him well. And uh, he he was about six years older than my dad, but they basically grew up in this small town and, and, and knew each other well. And when dad had to travel to a circuit court within Bud's selling territory, uh, dad would invite Bud to ride with him. And he would drop Bud off in the business district of that town, and then dad would proceed to the courthouse to do his work. And then at the end of that, he would pick Bud up at the end, and he would they would ride back home together. Uh, my father was very fond of Bud, and enjoyed his company. All through their adult lives particularly, I mean, Dad knew Bud to be very intelligent, and and he would work hard at having really great conversations with Bud. And he really admired Bud's determination to address and overcome and also contribute to the community. You know, my dad was very happy to tell me that Bud had received this local Chamber of Commerce award for his efforts in improving the downtown of Antigo, Wisconsin, with holiday decorations each year, and he manned the local Christmas tree lot, you know, with with his typical great enthusiasm. Um, my dad also knew Bud's family, and um, and and through that connection, he was able to gain me access to personal diaries and interviews with Bud's family members describing Bud's challenges and how they were dealt with. Bud was uh, fortunate in this regard that he was in a family where there was a doctor um, who helped to devise certain mechanisms for Bud to strengthen his muscles so he could he could walk more aptly. There was a teacher who could uh, teach him because he was not allowed to go to public school anymore. And those things were included in the conversations and diaries that I was able to access. And, and it certainly increased my personal interest in telling uh, Bud Beatty's story. So with that connection, I just got deeper into the law and wrote the seminar paper. I'm pleased to say that my professor was very enthused with the paper. <laughs> and uh, the result um, was that he encouraged me and helped me 
to get it published in the Ohio State Law Journal, as you said, in 1979. And it was published as a lead author, which was very unusual for a student. So that, that was very, uh, that was very helpful to me. Normally, students in law school write things called case notes for law schools. Those case notes don't appear uh, as prominently in the journal as as a lead article would. So that's what I did, and um, I'm grateful for that help that I got for that professor, for sure. Um, that's what you look for, for, for the best teachers. Along with emphasizing the importance of including human interest stories in legal analysis, Susan Smith-Blakely summarized the remainder of her 1979 article and gave an overview of the laws which changed how students with disabilities could obtain an education appropriate to their needs. These were passed in the 1970s following a series of court cases which the Disabilitan will explore in future installments of our miniseries Lawyers, Schools, and Access, the history of special education in the United States. The law can be very dry. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think that was one of the, the personal interest hook um, in Bud's story and getting the information from his family and also having had the connection that I had with him through through my dad um, is what got that article published in a leading law review because it's a personal interest story. And my particular emphasis in that article was Public Law 94-142, which was enacted in 1975 as a response to a decision of the United States Supreme Court in a case called San Antonio versus Rodriguez, which set back prior decisions of federal courts um, in two cases. One is called Park, P-A-R-C, and the Mills cases. I'm Abe Shapiro, WFHB News, Live and Learn. Up next, we have Little Bub's Little Show, a co-production between WFHB and Little Bub's Big Fun. We turn now to that segment. Welcome to Lil Bub's Lil Show, a weekly co-production from WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. We highlight adoptable animals with special needs in South Central Indiana and spotlight topics to promote human animal welfare. First, here is today's featured animal. This week's featured animal is Posh, a Manx cat. She is a dignified old lady who enjoys getting up in your business, napping next to you, and playing fetch. She is front declawed and diabetic, but she takes her insulin without fuss and is on a special diet. She has no adoption fee. To get this loving girl out of the shelter and into your lap, you may reach out to the City of Bloomington Animal Shelter. If you're interested in adopting today's featured pet, you can learn more at our websites, goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org. You're listening to Lil Bub's Lil Show. 
a co-production of WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. We now turn to this week's featured topic. On Friday, March 17th, the City of Bloomington Animal Care and Control seized 68 dogs and puppies from a hoarding-slash-unauthorized breeding operation. These animals were taken with the assistance of the Bloomington Police Department and the animal management officers from the Monroe County Sheriff's Department. Community members can assist by providing short-term foster care for shelter dogs that have been in the care of the animal shelter. Staff will provide on-the-spot foster approval, and fosters will be asked to provide temporary housing for one to two weeks. To learn more about the foster program or complete an application, visit bloomington.in.gov slash animal-shelter slash foster. Betting or monetary donations are also needed at this time. Betting can be dropped off in the white bin outside the front doors of the Bloomington Animal Shelter at 3410 South Walnut Street at any time. Monetary donations are accepted Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday from noon until 4 p.m. and Saturday and Sunday, noon until 3 p.m. You may reach out to Bloomington Animal Care and Control at 812-349-3492 with any questions regarding donations. The Monroe County Humane Association and Brown County Humane Society are both assisting with housing the dogs and puppies. You can learn more about these organizations, their services, and means of contact at MonroeHumane.org and BCHumane.org. Thank you for tuning in to Lil Bub's Lil Show on WFHB, produced in partnership with Lil Bub's Big Fund. For more info on today's featured animal and topic, Find us online at goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org.